0: Welcome to the latest edition of Talking About Methods. Today, I'm really delighted to be speaking to Kate Leader from York University. And we're going to be talking about methodology, performance and law, which is quite an unusual interface. Kate, I'd like to start by just asking you to tell our audience a little bit more about the sort of socio-legal work that you do by way of introduction.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. I think the best way to describe the research I do is I'm really interested in understanding what it's like to participate in legal process if you're not a pro, you know, if you're not a lawyer, you're not a judge. So if you're kind of an outsider. And so, I want to know how to access, I suppose, those experiences. So, the socio legal research I do tends to try to find ways to look at legal phenomena, uses qualitative methods that can kind of get at these unusual perspectives, I guess. So, I've done, you know, a few different things, but obviously, theatre and performance studies is a really core preoccupation for me in terms of my methods. So, for example, you know, my first PhD looked at the criminal trial as a performance. So, thinking about the theatricality of it and what that meant for how you're meant to perform or, you know, what the participation requirements were. And then more recently, you know, the second PhD I did was looking at litigants in person. And then I was using oral history, life stories to try and get at their unique narratives. And I think what kind of yokes it all together is wanting to draw from law and the humanities to find methods that get at different kinds of questions, I suppose, than ones we might normally ask. Some that are perhaps a bit unusual, but I think quite important, I guess
0: that's what I'd say. Great. I'd love to be in the position of saying, and my second PhD. (laughs) As you know, I've been talking about it for some years, but I don't know whether I'm actually going to get the position that you're in. So it's really interesting. You have dual specialisms in criminal law and theatre studies, as you've already indicated. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what's motivated the work you've undertaken at The Interface. I suppose what I'm really trying to pull out is what do you think performance studies or theatre can tell us about law and what can law tell us about theatre studies because sometimes it's rather hackneyed isn't it the way that people talk about the trialist theatre and that's not true of your work at all which is why we wanted to do this podcast with us so so just tell us a little bit more about perhaps what the disciplines can learn from each other or where the interface is yeah, thanks. I'm glad I'm glad you said that. I think the hackney
1: thing is a real issue. So yeah, I came from a theatre and performance studies background, basically. So the best way to answer that question is to give you my little narrative of my way into law and talk through these connections. So I was in theatre and performance studies, and I knew nothing about law and legal proceedings, but had this um, fascination for legal culture, which I think is you know quite a widespread thing, right? So when I approached looking at the criminal trial, I was really intrigued with what it represented and how we understood it. But you know, mostly it was just about when I started to go to the criminal trials and observe proceedings is how weird it was, obviously, how particular it was and how it came to be that way and to kind of basically think about the fact that, to me, it was obviously deeply, constitutively performative or theatrical. And it was very interesting to me, though, of course, that when I started to have conversations with people about it, that it was not necessarily particularly the case that other people saw that in the same way. So when I say I saw it as being performative, theatrical, there's lots and lots of different ways you can approach it, but I think you can say with confidence you know, that legal proceedings depend on factors to do with performance, that people have to gather together in the same space, that we assess someone's behaviour or demeanour and say that we can tell whether someone's telling the truth, that we have an idea of skill in oral proceedings of how you can come across as an effective advocate. All of these things, different ideas hinge on things that can can be pulled out of theatre and performance. And so I think they can be really valuable and theatre and performance can provide this vocabulary for making explicit this dependency. But what's really interesting, of course, is that legal professionals are often deeply uncomfortable with the analogy between law and theatre. And that became very apparent to me. And so, you know, when I was sort of talking to people, I was sort of realising that I think what that comes down to, you know, which I argued at the time, and I think is still the case, is that there is a very long-standing association between theatricality and artificiality and histrionics, right? So legal professionals would like to very clearly, you know, draw a bar between legal proceedings and what they deem to be the theatrical. And so you have to kind of navigate that discomfort to, um, I suppose, be able to draw out what you can learn from each discipline and say, we need to have a language to talk about this dependency we need to learn what we can about what enables people to participate effectively and what might disadvantage people and that this can be a really good way in but also respect the fact that for many people it's not something that they can sit comfortably with which I also
0: think is interesting It's fascinating. I was thinking as you were speaking about Costas de Zenas and Lynn Need's book on law and the image where they talk about any form of image or art being seen as frivolous, which is, I think, the point you're making. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because so much of the trial is about staging. It's about another aspect of performance studies. It's not necessarily just the performance. It's how you provide the architecture for the performance, which I think, well, as you know, I think law courts themselves play quite a large part in that.
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, as I've sort of moved in my career and these days, I'm, you know, researching civil justice and become completely fascinated by, I suppose, the sort of more low level civil proceedings, you know, and that's what I'm currently looking at. The more mundane stuff, you sort of realise that although the criminal trial kind of telegraphs its performativity in much more explicit ways, you know, like it's, as you say, there's staging and demarcation, you tend to have not always, as your, you know, work is beautifully talked about, you don't always have the grand courtrooms, but you do still sometimes have quite intimidating spaces. Whereas, of course, when you start thinking about county courts and tribunals. It's very banal, but these kind of places are still completely embedded with these questions of theatrics and performativity that are really critical in terms of how people are able to, you know, access justice or not, really not talked about. And so sort of kind of pulling that apart a bit and using that to think about the more mundane things, I think can be really illuminating. And yeah, so I started with the criminal trial, but these days I think the mundane stuff has got a lot to be said for it in terms of also exploring how we learn what appropriate behaviour is what we value who we say has the authority to speak in lots of different kinds of proceedings
0: I always love hearing a socio-legal scholar talk about the mundane and the banal I think it's where some of our best workers come from the sort of ordinary the everyday rather than these sort of big spectacles so could you tell us what some of the key themes that arise from your work around law and performance studies are? So I think I started off with the first PhD in particular thinking about this confrontation,
1: confrontation and liveness. So just to kind of talk you through it, I was really interested in this idea that you know you had to all be in the same place at the same time, and what it was that had to be done in that way. And so theater and performance studies has a, a long and rich history of thinking about it for pretty obvious reasons, because in the 20th century theater starts to be displaced by you know television, cinema, stuff that people find more fun in lots of different ways, and so theater has to kind of Reinvent itself and say, what are these essential qualities we have that no other medium have? And so you have this scholar in the 1990s who's particularly influential, called Peggy Phelan, whose work is beautiful, and she's very kind of interested in psychoanalysis and, and the humanities. But she talks about the immediacy and liveness of theatre. That if you are in a space like that, anything can happen. She, I think she calls it like a maniacally or manically charged present. It's a very kind of special, particular kind of environment that is not replaceable in any way by remote technologies or. Repro- production etc like that and i think that's a really powerful and interesting argument about what it is that can happen i mean in some ways you can see it in um, in a criminal proceedings we have to manage the defendant but also in civil proceedings who we allow to speak or not there is this kind of recognition that you know if you don't control it things can go a bit pear-shaped so when defendants act up for example all hell can break loose so this is quite a powerful and interesting kind of theme and then along after peggy feeling comes this other scholar called philip auslander who is much more cynical about these things and his work i also really like and he's like look you're talking about how wonderful it is and how powerful it is, but actually it's also pretty awful. You know, like it's obviously about power and it's about exploiting a particular moment to sort of do certain things. And yeah, so I think that conversation is a really rich one to think about why we choose to do it this way. And then, of course, to look at the online courts, look at removing participants from the courtroom, look at remote testimony and say, do we still invest in this value of liveness? So, for example, if you take a you know a sexual assault complainant out of the courtroom, I and mean, this is just one example, but you could take anyone out of the courtroom for the same conversation, really. And you allow them to testify in a format that is less upsetting for them, right? You can allow them to testify on video. They don't have to confront the person who is their attacker. And then you can definitely show that those individuals give better testimony, right? They're more confident and happy. But the question is, are we as likely to believe people in that context, or do we actually want them to be confronted? Like, will we actually think about it in the same way? Do we still have this investment in this power of liveness? And I think we still do. And I think it's very hard to articulate it. And it's very hard to quantify it. But it's sort of a question that lingers over things like online courts. Like, what effect is this having? And is a judge looking at someone differently if they're not there? Like, if they're not in front of them, does that somehow change the way they perceive them? So that's one thing. Another key theme, I think, is insider knowledge. I think that um, knowing how to perform, how to be good at something, is something that Theatre and performance studies is really good at pulling out. So, you know, sometimes lawyers love being called actors. Sometimes they hate it. There's a kind of a long history of flip-flopping around, you know, whether it's good to be an actor or bad to be an actor. Americans are a bit more kind of this is how you might use acting theory to be a good lawyer. Other English lawyers are just horrified by the idea. But moving away from acting in kind of a way that some people might perceive it, talking about how people acquire performance skills, how they rehearse, how they you know acquire behaviour is another, again, another language to talk about. All the stuff you start to embody and reproduce, not necessarily consciously, that will disadvantage people who don't have that explicit training. And also it's done in a way where as actors themselves will talk about, you know, you start to do things instinctively, if you like, and you can't explain what it is. And so when you have people who don't have legal representation, which of course is incredibly common you can't produce a good guide if you yourself don't know what it is that you're doing so I think theatre performance studies is brilliant to thinking about acting theory so these gaps in access to
0: justice that I think they can illuminate so those are the two big themes for me That's great. And I think there's, as you say, there's still so much to find out about online proceedings, isn't there? I mean, we've been sort of catapulted in it with lockdown and learnt a lot, but there's still so much that we don't know. As I think those comments that you've made are really useful. I wanted to ask you what insights you think this form of research can offer that others do not. And I wonder if in answering that, I could get you to pull out how it changes your methodology or methods. You know, I wonder if you think, if you are, for instance, sitting in the public gallery of a trial or watching something online, how you think differently about what you're looking for than somebody who might just have legal training.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I ran a class at Birkbeck a few years ago called Crime, Law and Performance, and I made all my students go to a courtroom and do a performance analysis of it. And they had to, um, I sort of gave them some spatial stuff, draw the courtroom. And of course, lots of them had problems with ushers telling them they couldn't do it. (laughs) You know, that's often the case. I think that was really interesting because those students did find it a very difficult process to change their methods. But there's a beautiful book by Lucy Welsh at Sussex on access to justice in magistrates courts and defendants' experiences that came out from Hart last year. And something that really stuck with me is she wrote this chapter about um, how the magistrates' courts is often perceived to be a law-free zone. People who don't regularly practice there or people who also practice in the Crown Courts can be quite dismissive or a bit like, you know, all hell breaks loose in the magistrates' that kind of business and how it's not really what the law is. But as she showed by going there and watching what took place, it was deeply, deeply legal. Everybody who was talking, you know, the prosecution, probation officer, were all using terms that denoted specific legal procedural requirements or you know to do with evidence but in a way that completely obscured that they were doing it like you would never have known if you were a defendant that anyone was talking about law they just thought they you know they sounded like they were just making practical observations but in fact without that legal knowledge you were completely lost so that kind of way of thinking about language tone gesture is a really illuminating way of thinking about how you can miss that you know you can completely miss that and you can miss how crucial that is for people who don't have access to those kinds of vocabularies and I thought that was a really interesting idea. It's not a law-free zone. It's it's totally lawy and totally exclusive to those who understand it. I think doing the performative analysis of a courtroom space can be useful. You have to not just focus on what you would normally look at. So think about who speaks and who's allowed to speak. Think about where people are. Think about who knows what. I mean, that's very vague and abstract. It's really difficult. But I think for lawyers who analyse spaces based on their legal knowledge, I think they miss a lot. And of course, I don't think I'd have to persuade view of that and they need to look at where they are where they're sitting you know you and i have spoken before about the public gallery and the view from those seats and i think if you can sort of change that perspective and think of different methods which is why pulling from the humanities somewhere else can be so valuable you can really learn a lot about legal proceedings and you can start to ask questions that i don't think you know legal proceedings themselves ask enough of themselves i suppose
0: that's really interesting, and this is my always my favourite question. What advice would you give your younger self about doing socio legal research? <laughs> You know, I look back and think I was so,
1: because it's an unusual thing to do, to walk up to a bunch of lawyers and say, well, you know, isn't this all about theatre really? I was very unconfident with doing it. I have a very strong memory of, um, I interviewed Mark Tedeschi, who's quite a senior lawyer in New South Wales, and who very kindly gave me his time to talk about advocacy training. I remember sitting down, I, I'd spent ages preparing, so sat down at the table with a tape recorder, we turned it on, and I just looked at him and was just paralysed with fear, said nothing, was just... <clears throat> And um, he very kindly bailed me out. And he was like, so should should I start by talking, you know, about this thing and acting journey? I was like, oh, thank God. But I do think I was, because I was doing something unusual, I really lacked the confidence to see the value in it. And I think something I would hope that other socio-legal researchers doing unusual methods, things from law and the humanities, would feel that it's worth doing, you know, that you might be asking slightly unusual questions. But there's a great value in quality of research that can either A, bring out, you know, nuances and subtleties that we might not normally see, and B, also totally change the questions we ask because you might unpick something that we never even thought of before.
0: So, yeah, I just wish I had been more confident, I think that I was doing something worthwhile and you've very kindly recommended three texts for people interested in what you do to read could you just walk us through your choices Yeah, so I've given you three texts back from my first
1: PhD that were really important to me. I've talked briefly about two of them, which is the Peggy Phelan and the Philip Auslander book. So Peggy Phelan's book is Unmarked, The Politics of Performance. And she talks about, you know, the power of the live, basically, about this charged present. And it's really interesting and influential to think about this idea of people gathering together and how we might invest in it in some way that's really important that we ourselves don't know that we're doing. And I think that's got lots of resonances for law. And then Philip Alzheimer's book is when he kind of looks at the legal arena. It's a really interesting book about different areas of cultural production, if you like, that uses video technology or liveness. And it's quite, you know, it's the 1990s. So he's talking about, you know, video. So it sounds a bit dated in lots of ways. But he talks about the way that the law has in some ways been much more resistant to incursions of mediatization than other areas. And I think it's interesting to reflect on that now because it hasn't, it hasn't. So in some ways it seemed deeper resistant other ways seems to be going full blazing ahead without actually thinking too much about the consequences. But he starts to try and unpick what is it that might make the law less able or find it more uncomfortable to think about mediatization and how this liveness plays out in recordings. I think the third book is Vivian Petrarca. Is that right? Spectacular Suffering. I mean, how I came to law in the first place when I was doing theatre and performance studies is actually through this book. So this is an extraordinary book about Holocaust performatives, basically, like whether you could have a performative about the Holocaust, but more generally about how you can use theatre as a form of representation when words can fail. So I was reading her book and I was looking at museum exhibitions depicting traumatic events. So things like the Holocaust, the Imperial War Museum used to have a genocide exhibition I'm not sure if it's still there. And I was interested in the way that they would use theatrical devices to kind of communicate what language couldn't. And so in that respect, Vivian Petrarca's work, which looked at different examples of performance produced during the Holocaust and performances that have engaged with these ideas, can show you how theatre and performance can provide testimony or a representation for things that we struggle to do in the written form. And so that kind of thinking about testimony was really influential for me in thinking, well, that's a fascinating idea, testimony. And that is what took me to law.
0: That's wonderful. Those are three reads that I'm really looking forward to. (laughs) And I'm struck. I've just been listening to um, quite a lot of In Our Times podcasts. And I'm conscious at the end, Melvin Bragg, who I wouldn't compare myself to at all, always asks people, is there anything that he should have asked them that he didn't or anything they haven't covered? Is there anything that we haven't covered as regards the sort of interface between law and theatre studies?
1: The only thing I'd like to say is that there are others out there more and more doing this kind of work who are writing really interesting things so it would be nice to name to say some other people. Vashak um, Erta at Birkbeck's got a gorgeous book now on performance and political trials. There's um, Sean Mulcahy he wrote an incredible article about dancing the law and then Denise Shaikh's book about theatrical reparations and Indian penal law. I, just there's It's a flourishing area of scholarship and
0: I'd really encourage people to not just listen to me talk about it. <laughs> Very modest way to end. Thank you so much Kate. It's been Lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Socio Legal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.